Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring open hardware. Open software was the subject of a recent episode of this podcast and in this month's Physics World magazine you can find a feature entitled High Spec Open Source Microscopy for All by Richard Bowman and Julian Sterling of the Bath Open Instrumentation Group who are describing the lessons learned in developing a low-cost, laboratory-grade microscope which is 3D printed in a project known as Open Flexure. They've worked with groups in Tanzania to develop ways to use the microscope in detecting malaria. We'll hear from Richard and Julian later in the podcast. But first, here's Julieta Arancia. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at University of Bath and Drexel University in the US, in Philadelphia. And I am a social scientist. So my research is on open hardware as democratizing force in, in science. For me, open hardware can refer to the practice of developing and using artifacts that have their designs published openly using open licenses. It also refers uh, as a movement, which is what I've been studying uh, since the PhD. In particular, open hardware for science. It's something that has been growing a lot uh, in the last five years. And it also refers to, to technology. You can certify open hardware. So uh, it also refers to those those objects that the design, you can access the design via the web. Um, but I would say that in general is the practice of developing and uh, sharing the designs of material objects. And in particular, regarding what we are talking today, the tools that you use to produce knowledge. I think open software is something that people talk about, but I don't know how well-known open hardware is. I, I was just writing about that before this. <laughs> um yeah, because open source software, we are, we're all quite familiar with open source software because of its success, right? It's everywhere. Um, open hardware is much more recent. And uh, if you see, there are, there are some very interesting papers on literature, the academic literature, which gives you an indication of how mature a field is. And it's, of course, it's uh, the literature on open hardware is, is less than open source software, but the, t- the trend is it's really impressive. So, yeah. Um, People are more familiar with open source software. And what the example I use in in general is um, in open source software, the developer shares the source, which is a text file with code, right? And um, the source in open hardware is the design. So because of all the um, advances, the incredible advances, uh, I would say 3D printing, right? Like the 3D printing revolution. (laughs) And and that's why, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm at Bath, because Bath was place where 3D printing was born. I, I think that now we have the technical means to share the source of material objects. And that is why open hardware is now growing. There's, you could not think, I mean, there were, there were early, very early presence of open hardware, but to see it as, as it's growing now, it's because of those, those technical advances. Also because you have better software now for designing hardware and testing hardware. And also because everyone has access to the internet now. Well, not everyone, sorry, but there is a massification of the access to the internet. And uh, that allows people to um, exchange designs, but also to form communities around particular projects, such as OpenFlexure. We'll get into the detail of what OpenFlexure is all about shortly. But back in 2004, something happened which sparked the beginning of a revolution 
that became the open hardware movement. Well, the RepRap project was born at Bath with Adrian Boyer and and it exploded from there. Um, it started as, as a project of making a machine that can reproduce itself, let's say, uh, make the same parts as, except for some, some general spare parts you can access easily in general. And um, that exploded into people uh, forking, which is basically taking the main design and adapting it to their own needs uh, everywhere around the world. And well, 3D printed now, you can find it, I think, in almost every field, right? You can find it in, in building, um, in, yeah, in, in foundations, of, uh, in architecture, you can find it in nanomaterials, you can find it in, in organic tissue, I mean, food, it's, it's everywhere. So um, open science hardware, many projects uh, are, are built with 3D printing in mind. Um, so I think that is the most one of the most interesting uh, features for me of open science hardware is how it harnesses the um, the power of distributed manufacturing. Not not all uh, projects, not all open science hardware projects are made using fluid um, printing. Uh, there are other also digital fabrication tools that are are used, but many of them do and. Uh, if you have access to a 3D printer, then you can replicate it. Just what, quickly, what are the other ones that might, you might be able to use? It's easier than ever now to, uh, to have the schematics um, of an electronic uh, device and send it for printing. And also the access to these digital fabrication tools in makerspaces and um, at universities, fab labs that have these tools and you can access them. Not, not all of them are open spaces, but it's easier to access those tools than it was before. So, so that's, that's a big part of uh, making that possible. The mainstream of open hardware is really just creating a device and then publishing the designs. But off circuit, it's more about investing time and effort in co-creation. And it's those projects, like OpenFlexure, where Julieta's research has focused in in the Gosh community, which is uh, the context of my research, which is the global open science hardware community. Um, many many projects in the global south, in Latin America, but also some projects in Africa, um, in some African countries, were concerned with the idea of I want to use open hardware to pursue the research. I need. And so assuming that currently tools were not allowing them to do that uh, from experience, of course. And my research then was uh, trying to understand um, in which ways, right? It's I do qualitative stuff, kind of um, participant observation. I follow people <laughs> wherever they go and interview them and observe how, how they work. Um, and this is what I did with Gosh and in lesser lesser extent with some of the projects because I was not able to go to every site. But uh, I I studied four projects. Uh, well, one was OpenFlexure. Another, and in OpenFlexure, I focused in particular in the Tanzania part of the project. Um, another one was um, a project at the Emboa Lab in Cameroon. They were making um, an incubator 
uh, that is called Cosamtor because it was very interesting how they turned an open hardware incubator into a, a tool for a development project. They were making at a makerspace, they were making incubators, they are making incubators with um, with women of the local community to produce yogurt so they can generate some income. And of course, for a food safety, food security angle. Um, and the other projects were in Latin America. One was a project building open source drones for community research in Chile. They were trying to... Um, it was very interesting how these open source projects allow you to diverge, right? Because they are intended for for something in the very beginning, but you cannot control what people are going to use them for. So this has started as a community project in Chile. The community wanted to build a simple drone to monitor the activity of a mining site that the, um, the city was ensuring that it was closed and the neighbors they they didn't believe it was closed. So they wanted to monitor that. But then the same design was picked up by um, an agricultural research institute and re- replicated in seven institutes all in Latin America for uh, climate change research. Um, and that was, the original was adapted from a Spanish guy who published the designs of an open source drone. So uh, th- this is kind of a, an interesting um, feature of open source, right? You, you the impact is kind of endless. Um, and finally, the last project was uh, a very another very interesting one, more related to uh, medicine epidemiology. Um, it was um, by a, a group, a, two early re- career researchers in Peru. They were um, trying to explore how malaria, um, malaria uh, people with malaria in indigenous populations in the Peruvian Amazon. Um, can transmit the disease uh, as they move. So how human mobility is a factor for malaria transmission in indigenous populations. And um, they had very little money and there was no way they could do the research with the kind of gold standard um, tools that you use for that because they were imported imported tools and also because (laughs) this is another interesting angle, um, the tools that they usually import to do this this job is um, the tools don't tolerate well the Amazonian weather conditions. So um, they needed something that was tailored to their needs. Um, so they decided to build one. And uh, that is the Gorgas Tracker, which is, I think, a very, very clear example of the potential of open hardware in academia in particular. That was a, a very academic project um, because in a very short period of time after that research was done, uh, they were able to influence the national malaria policy in Peru that included human mobility as an axis for control. And also the, these two early career researchers became the uh, the directors of the Health Innovation Lab, which is um, a lab at university that is working on open source software and hardware for research. Let's turn to open flexure. And flexure itself is a word that means flexible plastic, thin, flexible plastic. Open flexure, as we've been saying, is a microscope. Here's Richard Bowman. I'm a Royal Society University Research Fellow and proleptic reader at the University of Bath. It all kicked off on a Friday afternoon when, after visiting Alex Kabla's lab in Cambridge, 
I was very curious how much of a microscope you could actually 3D print. His team had a 3D printed microscope that was 3D printed in the same sense as a RepRap 3D printer. So all the custom bits were printed, but all of the mechanics were kind of smooth rods and ball bearings and timing belts that you had to buy in. And I guess if you could 3D print the whole mechanism, you could not only eliminate a lot of the tedious sourcing of parts, but you could also massively cut down the amount of assembly that's needed. And I guess I kind of saw an interesting potential there for making a scientific instrument that was easier to replicate somewhere else. Why Tanzania? Contacts, really. There was a project student who was doing a, a master's in manufacturing engineering. And for her project, she worked with a charity, Tech for Trade, um, and went out to the organization that became our partners out there, um, Stick Lab, now, now Bungle Tech and Research Labs. They were interested in using open source designs to 3D print interesting and useful products as a, as a business enterprise. And Tech for Trade had worked with them to develop a 3D printer that they could make locally using parts that were available and skills that they could find, like welding and uh, e-waste for many of the components. So they were, yeah, they were looking for products that they could create. And Georgia took the microscope out there and then they showed it could be done. Tell me a bit about how you come to be one Friday afternoon thinking about making a microscope for the 3D printer. My research background is in microscopy and instrumentation, in particular automating experiments so that they are more repeatable, so they can produce more data than you would under manual control. And it involves a lot of building new instruments. And one of the challenges when you're working with these really custom pieces of kit is uh, how, do you, how do you replicate that in somebody else's lab? And oftentimes this involves an exchange of people. There's a lot of verbal communication. Uh, you end up purchasing a lot of parts. The whole process is very labor intensive and very expensive. And I was curious if 3D printers really could make that easier so that if I design a new instrument in my lab, I can then get it into somebody else's lab with less fuss, effectively. What are the hurdles that you had to get over using a 3D printer for a microscope? The biggest one is that the way a conventional microscope is constructed, the way that it moves the sample around, the way that it brings it into focus, because actually a, a lot of a microscope is about the precision mechanics. Um, that's all done using designs that require very precise parts. So they have to fit over each other tightly enough that they don't wobble, but not so tightly that they jam. That then means also that you need smooth surfaces so they can slide over each other nicely. The surfaces need to be very hard so they don't wear down over time. Um, and that in turn makes them harder to machine. With a 3D printer, almost none of those conditions are met. The parts rarely come out exactly the right size. The surface finish is rough because of the layers from the printing and plastic is quite a soft material. So clearly a, a conventional dovetail type stage doesn't work. And that's why we use a flexure mechanism, hence the name open flexure, where just like on the, the lid of your shampoo bottle, um, there's a thin piece of plastic that's able to bend. And so we use multiple flexure hinges, multiple thin bits of plastic to create mechanisms like a parallelogram where one side can move linearly with respect to the other without 
changing angle or wobbling off to the side. And it turns out those flexure mechanisms are really very precise and stable. And so that forms the basis of a really good microscope stage. But engineering that design based around those flexures in a way that could print without lots of support material and that maximized the stiffness in the important directions. That was the major challenge. And is it a microscope that you can use for any microscopy? There are lots of ways to build an open flexure microscope. And so in principle, at least, you can do more or less anything that you can do with a conventional optical microscope. Most of the time we use it in what's called bright field. So you simply shine light through the sample and then you look at what passes through Uh, on the other side. That's how you would do, for example, malaria diagnosis. But we've built variations that can do fluorescence imaging, that can generate contrast from phase features in the sample, and various other imaging modes um, that you would find on a typical optical microscope. You mentioned its use in malaria detection, and that's something that's come out of the partnership working, isn't it? The thing that really made the Open Flexure project take off, in fact, the thing that made it take over from much of the rest of my research was people wanting to use it. Initially, there was a student project that then turned into a startup that is in fact still going, looking at water testing. And in particular, how can you detect bacteria in drinking water faster? They proved very quickly that a microscope could help there. Um, But actually, most of the challenges of that project were elsewhere in the Um, in the biology, the incubation step. But through pursuing that avenue, we then got in touch with lots of people who were doing humanitarian work. And a question I kept getting asked was, could you use this for medical diagnostics? In particular, could you diagnose malaria? Um, Because malaria is often diagnosed by microscope, still regarded as the gold standard. Um, And diagnosis is often not as easily available as it should be. Malaria is a big problem. It affects about 200 million people a year, and about half a million of those will die, more or less all of them under fives in Africa. We as a species have made quite a lot of progress at eradicating malaria. Those numbers are much smaller than they were a couple of decades ago. But that actually means it's more important to have good diagnosis because 20 years ago, in a lot of places, you could send someone home with antimalarials if they came in with a fever. You didn't bother doing any diagnostic tests because you were pretty sure it was malaria. As the incidence has gone down, that approach is much less safe because you might be sending someone home who has a life-threatening fever caused by something else. Uh, So diagnostics is, if anything, more important. Um, And there's a shortage both of trained technicians and of equipment. And we think that what the open flexure microscope brings is twofold. Partly it's smarter. It's a digital microscope. So you can set it scanning a slide uh, and eliminate a lot of the very tedious manual operation that potentially frees up the technician's time. But it also means you're keeping better records. And you can ask someone remotely for a second opinion, and that then feeds into training the technicians better, uh, doing better quality control. And finally, because the whole thing is is printable, is open source, and is locally manufacturable, it solves a huge supply chain issue. 
there's a lot of donated medical equipment in many places in Africa that simply doesn't get used because there aren't service engineers available or it needs proprietary consumables that, that you can't buy or any number of other factors, which I think are all much improved by having a local manufacturer. And so I'm really excited that BTEC in Tanzania are able to produce the microscope. Um, and our hope is that in the coming years, they will get certified and be able to sell that into hospitals and other medical markets. From the UK side of that partnership working, here's Julian Sterling. I work at the University of Bath on the Open Fletcher project. So I've been part of the project for about almost four years now. My main role seems to be being a bit of a jack of all trades. I think I, I turned up, I was meant to be uh, changing how we actually do the calculations for 3D printing. And I've got much more into how we do quality control and documentation and traveling out to Africa and sort of understanding the relationships with our partners. So it's uh, it's it's something that really attracted me to the project originally was when they said you might get to go to Tanzania. And it was in one of the early meetings when, so obviously I hadn't met the team, other people in Bath had, and there was an idea that maybe I'd go out for a few days and see the operation there. And the first thing I said was, you know, if somebody, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If somebody comes into your lab for two days, you show them what you want them to think about your lab. And you're not lying, but everybody, it's like someone comes around your house, you clean up your house, you tell them, you know, ah, oh, it's always like this. You just need to be there so I think the first time I went out for almost a month and so just straight into the project I'd only be part of it for a couple of months and the guys in Tanzania they're so friendly one of them put me up in their house so then I'm in their house they lived there was just a fence through to where we worked and so you very quickly get sort of you know day one here's how everything goes within a week they've got used to you you're not an outsider and I mean obviously you're always a bit of an outsider. I don't work there. But then you really got a feeling of how things were done. And it's been invaluable, I think, to the project that it's it's all of the little things where, oh, we can't just design it like that. When we tried to get one, yes, we could, but we spent all day, you know, a particular component, we spent all day in a market trying to get one or two and they're just not available. And so it's it's just sort of having a feeling of what it's like on the ground. So what are those components that you can't 3D print? Obviously, you can't 3D print the actual camera. It's electronic. You, you can't print some of the optics. And then it's nuts, bolts, screws, motors. Um, so, I mean, a lot of this working out whether we could get them was something the project would be very aware of before I went out there. It's not like that was something I came up with. But there are certain things which are so hard to get done in the UK now. Like, if you want to get something welded at a university, you'll have to go around and ask for all sorts of different things and contractors. If you want to get something welded in Africa, you probably look out the window and someone's welding something on most street corners. If not, it's not going to be too far down the road in Tanzania to have something welded. And so as soon as you start thinking about maybe not the microscope, but when we were thinking about how do we mechanically test some of the components, and that's actually a side project that I never finished, but straight away, trying to get all of this uh, extruded aluminium section that we'd started with, you're just sort of there going, how do I make this strong enough? Oh, wait, I need to shut my eyes. There's sparks flying from a welder. Wait a second. And, you know, 10 minutes later, somebody have welded me up a much more solid frame and the 
we came back to how do we get this made in the UK? And we, we just we just put one in a suitcase and took it back from Tanzania. <laughs> Much easier. So I, the microscope's really interesting from a mechanical perspective. So what I love about the microscope when I first came to it was 3D printing. I'd mostly only really seen it used to make sort of toy instruments. So you go, oh, look, here is a microscope or whatever. You look at how it's made in metal. You CAD up a simplistic version of the same thing. You 3D print it. And hey, presto, you have a really bad microscope. And that's not what was done on this project. It was thinking about, right, how does plastic differ from metal? It's more flexible, but unfortunately that's that's good if you want to have very fine precision because flexures, little things that bend can do very precision motion. That's bad from a case of stability. If you make it too big, it will wobble and you want things to stay in the right place. So Richard's great idea was to make a really small compact microscope and take advantage of the fact that a 3D printer can print such a complicated structure that you can't make in traditional machining and use that to have all of the mechanics in one single piece. And then you can have a quite complicated instrument, mostly made in one part, all the difficult mechanics. And so I think if the project... Well, I don't think the project would have been funded to the point where they would be employing someone if it was just that. But I don't think I would have been really interested in it anyway, because it would seem like just sort of, you know, we've got a new tool, we have to use it. What what should we make? So I, I think it's a really good example of what you can do with low-cost 3D printing. That The RepRap project, the first low-cost 3D printer, was an open hardware project. So it's also from the University of Bath. Someone realized that I think at the time... I, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was it was some silly number of thousands of pounds for a, a plastic 3D printer at the time. And he was sure he could, uh, Adrian Bowyer was sure he could make similar mechanics for a fraction of it. So he carefully asked for a research grant, the entire research grant, for the cost of what a printer would have been at the time and developed the first rep wraps. And 3D printers, low-cost 3D printers, have improved massively over the last decade or so to the point where they are everywhere, possibly on the International Space Station, I'm not sure, but um, they, they become ubiquitous to the fact that they're in lots of people's houses. And you wouldn't have got to that place with it, without the sort of open hardware element that people went, oh, well, that doesn't quite work, but I can fix it. And lots of the parts were 3D printed. So we are sort of improving the 3D printer by using your 3D printer. And it's it grew into a community that's created an uh a piece of equipment that really is fit for purpose for you know making things like our microscope and so um i think it's just sort of home to the community 3d printing but we need to get back into mills lathes but you know they're expensive equipment so it's uh that's what maker spaces are starting to make available and it's really sad that universities are not teaching um engineers and physicists how to go into a workshop and make something on a mill and a lathe anymore and what's the plan for all this in the future so the the plan is to build up a network of local manufacturers so the biggest problem with getting uh microscopes or having microscopes available often in sub-saharan africa is not the initial cost of how much it costs to get someone a microscope because i don't know you can get a research grant and buy a £20,000 microscope, 
put it into Africa, someone can use it to diagnose malaria. But what people generally don't think about is what happens the first time a cog goes. Now, it's probably not a standard cog, and you have to contact the manufacturer who won't send you a spare part, and they want to send you an engineer who probably wants a business class flight, and then it costs 10 grand to mend a 10 grand, 20 grand microscope. And so the big aim of the project is to make sure that it's built locally so that it can be maintained locally. So you have local service engineers. So we need to work out how we go through all of the medical uh, quality control to make the device safe um, and how we how we sort of establish that connection and make you know transfer the information from us correctly um so that's why we've concentrated on one country building up that capacity but then after that yes we have um we have lots of contacts in ghana we've got contacts in cameroon and we're building sort of a wider network across um mostly sort of east africa um kenya uganda um, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and then a couple of countries in West Africa, but with the plan that each local company could support either their country or sort of a small region of country. So you don't have the same problem of how do you get an engineer from one continent to another or across a continent just to mend a part of a microscope. Yeah, well, it it sounds like what it, I was going to say it sounds like a great project, but it's more than that really, isn't it? And have you got Funding continuing for it? Our funding came from the aid budget. And so people generally think about the aid budget as it doesn't matter what newspaper you look at, whether it's The Guardian or The Daily Mail. When they mention the aid budget, you see aeroplanes on runways delivering food. And most people think of the aid budget as we'll airdrop some food somewhere and we're not thinking about sustainability. And so you talk to people who can be very anti the aid budget at the start of a conversation. You mention the microscope, how we're trying to build capacity in in country, and they say, oh, this is brilliant. How, how are you funding this? And you say, well, you know, our funding's running out now because of the cuts to the aid budget. They're like, I didn't think that's what the aid budget funded. And you sort of, it's so frustrating. Um, and, you know, the cuts to the aid budget were illegal. We had a legal agreement to spend 0.7% of GDP on the aid budget, and they didn't put the vote to uh, cut it through the House of Commons. We're now sitting and thinking about how do we keep ourselves funded? How do we keep the lights on? Um, Come, well, it's just been pushed back to August, but come August, I'm unemployed. The Conservative government in the UK cut the annual aid budget from 0.7% of gross national income to 0.5% this year, which is a real terms cut of between £4 billion and £5 billion per year. It breaks a pledge in the Conservatives' manifesto from 2019. And, well, here's Richard Bowman again. The challenge for us really is that seeing a project like this all the way from idea to implementation takes a long time. And so we had, I guess, four and a bit years of GCRF funding, which was great, but it takes two or three of those years just to build the relationships that you need to really get things done. GCRF 
is the Global Challenges Research Fund from the UK government. And so the fact that the GCRF was basically pulled at the end of that time means that we've built up a lot of the resources, the contacts, the relationships that you need to really make some progress. And then everybody's got to go find something else to do. And I think it's particularly harsh on the postdocs in the project who have really put heart and soul into the spirit of research for global development, uh, often at the expense of doing things like publishing lots of papers that would be good for their CVs going forward. Um, And now those opportunities have all just vanished. Um, I think it's, it's a bit of a tragedy because those people will be lost from the academic system or they will have to go and find other projects within the academic system. And so even if the aid budget cuts are reversed very soon, I think it will take years for that flourishing ecosystem of research for the global good to come back again in the UK. Um, And I think that's a crying shame. It certainly is. And just by the very nature of open hardware, it's difficult to measure the impact sometimes. But out there in the wild, so to speak, there have been hundreds of microscopes that have been produced off the back of this project. And there are about 200 users on their online forum, which is the hub of activity for the Open Flexure community. On there, there's over 1,400 snapshots of different versions of the microscopes being developed. And whilst I don't want to downplay the importance of the real impact on this particular project of the Conservative government's decision to cut aid, I don't want to leave this podcast on a sour note. So let's look at that passion that Richard Bowman talked about. Here's Julian Sterling again. Open source has always been a huge passion of mine. So I'm a Linux nerd, Linux user, um, always been very much into open source software. And then I've, and very passionate about sort of open standards for data when you're publishing, publishing openly. But then most of my scientific career, pretty much all of it, I've been designing hardware. And so it's always been, you know, it's something I always wanted was to make sure that I could share the hardware that I was making, especially seeing the the funding to do it was publicly funded. Um, But yeah, I always met some sort of pushback that you say, okay, we could just make all the plans open and people say no. And I think I'd never really got my act together and just looked up, is there an open hardware community? Because it was, you know, it's still very young and it was even younger um, when I started shouting to a few people that we should uh, make designs open, but I hadn't sort of properly gone out and realized CERN had its open hardware license and other things. So that was, uh, I suppose, the arrogant physicist in me that I just, uh, I thought that if I hadn't already heard of it, that <laughs> I should invent it. So that was, uh, it was eye-opening for me seeing the advert for the project that already said, you know, part of the open hardware community. I was just like, oh, this is, this is where I want to be. And I went to my first open hardware conference. I've never, I've never felt more home. So it just turns out my people were out there and I just didn't know about them. You found your people. That's great. But how do you get past the, um, you know, we're not, we're not going to release our stuff because it belongs to us and we, we can't just let our IP go out there. So I suppose it depends on which project you're on and how you're doing things. So if you're in the middle of someone else's 
hardware project and it was never planned to be open and they've got agreements in place uh i'm i'm not sure how you how you go through that and i think the important thing is to be open and honest from the start that you want to open things so if you write into a research gr- grant the benefit of this is you know cuz otherwise you can think about designing a microscope for instance how many microscopes have been designed? And more importantly, how many times has the taxpayer paid for someone to design a microscope? And is there any benefit to you know, the tiny bit of IP you create? Most of things, you're reinventing the wheel. Is there any benefit to the people funding you to protect that IP? If you get it at the point of asking for the grant saying that we're going to keep it open then you've already had that argument you know you've been funded to have something open something else that i quite like at the university when we think of sort of a small side project and you just start it is the university tells us that any big idea we have i think should have to check before we open it so i as soon as i start having an idea I make an open repository and put the data there because that's only a small idea. And then when I improve that small idea, so as far as I'm concerned, if I always release every single small idea, by the time it turns it into a big idea, I'm never releasing a big idea. I'm releasing lots of incremental small ideas, which I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to do. I'm a university or I'm a company making some hardware and I want to make money from it. So why do I do open hardware? So I I think the company aspect and the university aspect are separate. So it very much depends what hardware you're talking about. If you are talking about, let's say, a very, very fancy brand new scientific device, which is the purpose is for doing science. So then where did your funding come from? It probably didn't come from something that's to boost UK industry. It came from a pot of money that is to increase uh, science in the UK. In which case, are you benefiting science in the UK by making this brand new, very fancy instrument? And then part of, so part of our funding, we have to publish openly. So That means all data I've collected with the instrument should be open and available to you, the taxpayer who funded it, as should a paper about it, as should the software in most cases now. And you can't use any of that if you don't also have the design for the hardware. And so if you funded me to design a piece of hardware for science, it doesn't make sense that when I open everything, I open data about that thing and then close off the actual instrument. And where it becomes really problematic is you create a brand new instrument, you put the IP into a company, and then the next person, funded by the same the same researcher grant, says, I've got an idea for a slightly improved version of this instrument. And rather than having a six-month grant of taking the designs for that instrument and slightly improving it, they spend three years reinventing the thing that took you four years because they've got a paper about vaguely how it works but not really and then once they finally got working based on the same funding the same thing working they can do their tiny little addition that might get spun out into a different company and the third person comes on i've got a great new and so how much time is spent in universities reinventing the exact same thing and if you knew that i need 
it's soul destroying when you're there going, oh, I need to make this. And someone, someone here made it a few years ago and we don't have any record of it. So just design it again. I mean, that's not progress. Indeed, it's not. But again, I don't want to leave you on a bit of a down note. So I'll give the final word to Richard Bowman. It is great to see the microscope getting picked up by scientists all around the world, um, both in the UK and further afield. And it's particularly nice that they're not only coming from labs where resources are really tight. Actually, this design enables you to do things that you can't do even in a very well-funded lab. For example, you could have a bank of 10 or 20 of these all processing samples in parallel. So if you have an experiment that needs to run for a long time, you don't have to tie up tens of thousands of pounds of commercial microscopy equipment. People have customized them to do polarization microscopy or fluorescence or various other techniques and integrated them into larger experiments. Because of course, if you have a microscope that you can print out and assemble for something in the region of a couple of hundred pounds, it then becomes much more feasible to treat that as a component in a larger experiment. And so rather than building your experiment around a microscope, you embed a microscope in your experiment. And that potentially means you can stick it in a fume hood or a biocontainment lab where nothing comes out again. Um, And it's really great to see people starting to pick this up and integrate it into other research projects. And I'm, I'm excited to see it becoming something of a uh, almost a standard piece of equipment that you can just bolt in. Um, we've had people integrate it with UC2 modular optics, which then enables you to kind of build a much more complicated microscope that does very fancy things, but still use the nice mechanical package that we've developed. We even had someone do super resolution imaging by coupling in a new laser and camera. Again, just taking advantage of the nice mechanics that we've built. Taking advantage of and building upon the work of other scientists seems to be at the very core of open hardware. And you'll forgive me for thinking that perhaps it's at the very core of all science. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And we'll be back next month with my favourite, and I know a favourite episode for many of you, as we have our annual celebration of popular science writing books. Perhaps giving you some ideas for presents or your own reading over the holiday period. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.